Avi on Money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's 7 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining me. If you're a parent, if you're a student, if you're in school, if you're in high school, if you're thinking of graduating, if you're thinking of going to do anything after school that's academic, where you're trying to get a job thereafter, please pull over to the side of the road, just calm down, sit down and listen, because we have the dying of education when it comes to post-grad and post-school education. Ari Katz, the founder of Boston City Campus in studio. How was that for interaction, Ari? You're a good liar. <laughs> I, I think many, many students would disagree with you on that one. But uh, welcome to Chai FM. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Great. Ari, we, we don't have the whole afternoon. We've only got an hour, unfortunately, and we've got to pack a lot into that. So maybe really let's start off by, um, just for me, a bit of a throwback. You started Boston City Campus. Why? Okay, so my previous background you weren't expecting was, that question, hey? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting that <laughs> one. But my previous background was I was an accountant. I was a partner at EY. I uh, worked for them extensively in Europe, the States, Canada. And when I came back, I started lecturing part-time at WITS. And uh, at some point, I decided that uh, I wanted to do, do something more meaningful with my life. And so I quit EY, and I took up a post as a visiting associate professor at WITS for two years. And during that time, I saw there was a gap in the market, uh, primarily with UNISA students uh, who were struggling on their own. And so we started with four students in Orange Grove, really just giving extra lessons. And that was in 1991. And then over time, we progressed from a lecture-based environment to a technology-based environment. And today, we had our systems are fully technology-driven. Um, it's an online system. We have 46 colleges around South Africa and 25,000 full-time students and around 10,000 part-timers. So from four to a full institution with hundreds of students, basically. Yep. It's, it's quite incredible. Right. You've come across the journey, and as you said in your introduction there, it's fully integrated. Technology plays a major part. How have you seen that morph over the last couple of years with regards to education? So let's talk for a little bit about distance education. Right. So in the distance framework, um, historically, students registered at institutions like UNISA, they would receive their study material in the post or through a courier. They would do assignments, they would submit them, and they'd pitch up at the exam. And that was really the mode of distance education. However, with the introduction of the digital age, this um, divide between distance on the one side, pure distance, and contact on the other side has become uh, much narrower and primarily because through the use of the digital tools we're able to interact with our students on a uh, on a on literally on a daily basis we're able to use diagnostics to understand exactly what they know and what they don't know where they're struggling where they're not struggling and we're able to collaborate with students in a more uh, comprehensive manner so one of the one of the criticisms of distance education is that there's no room for debate, no room for consultation, etc. And I would argue that in the online mode, in fact, the opportunity for debate and consultation is actually increased because you can collaborate with your lecturer, you can collaborate with other students, and you can collaborate and debate with students anywhere in the world. And we're seeing that. And we're seeing that our student uh, base doesn't only consist of South African students, but we're picking up students right around the world, actually. 
So you've got students not living in South Africa that are signed up to Boston in yeah, South plenty, Africa. Plenty. Which means that the, the qualifications they're coming were out with ultimately are relevant to where they're living. So I think there are many reasons for that. One might be that uh, we think, which we think is probably the biggest, is that there are ex-South Africans, um, some of whom who started studying in South Africa and then moved overseas, or who studying overseas and who might want to come back to South Africa, and therefore they might have chosen South Africa as a destination for the education. But the reality is that we're in a very open world today, um, so much so that you could you might do uh, first year at Boston and go to second year at Wits or the other way around, or internationally, in fact. So really, it's, it's totally, totally transparent, and you can move from one to the other, and you can really just... Are the degrees, are the years all interchangeable amongst no, no, universities? No. So when I say that you can move, there are a lot of subject twos to that. So the first okay. subject two, obviously, is that the, you would have to articulate the curriculums. So if you, for example, want to do accounts one at a certain institution and then do accounts two at a second institution, you would have to be sure that their curricula uh, articulate and that they recognize it. So as we, as the world moves on, that degree of interchangeability is increasing. However, at this stage, you would have to do a lot of homework before you just automatically assumed that you could just move from one to the other. You've been around for a long time in, in education. You've seen a change. You've seen the, the growth that it's gone through. We're now sitting on the cusp of what we call the fourth industrial revolution. Not right. quite sure what that means. It's quite a broad term. But how do you see that impacting directly on education, on preparing graduates for the workplace in a world that's just changing so quickly? So I think there are a number of things. I think the one is that students, and therefore graduates eventually, are going to have to learn to interact with the technology um, far more than was historically the case. And we're going to have to learn to uh, interact with tools like artificial intelligence, virtual reality, etc. Because the world of work is going to become one of uh, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, etc. So the sooner we get to grips with those technologies, the easier it will be for us to actually interact with the world of work. So that's the one thing. Coupled with that is the fact that the skills that we're going to be needed to interact in that world are also going to change and are already changing. So, for example, if you think about it in uh, manufacturing and production as an example, so historically you would learn to operate machines and it would be physical skills effectively. In the new world, it's going to be about managing mis- um, uh, machines, um, high technology, complex problem solving, etc. And so the question really is how do we change the way we teach and the way we think and the way we learn to adapt for the, for the new world? So to speak, and I think that's the the million dollar question that everybody in the industry is grappling with at the moment. And I don't think there's a really a crystal ball answer to that, other than to say that we're going to have to teach people things like collaborative learning, critical thinking, uh, challenging the system, problem solving. Funny enough, a lot of the skills that you would have got from simply learning Gemara for many years, just. Uh, uh, if you think about it like that, as opposed to the rote learning and the regurgitative learning, which we uh, certainly in my day grew up with, um, and that's definitely moving. So the qualifications that people are coming out with now, because that's a criticism that I've seen or I've heard a lot, is that people come out, they have very prestigious qualifications. And to become a chartered accountant is no easy achievement. Um, to get to the undergrad, the honors year and the board is, is certainly achievement. But yet there's, there's almost a tunnel vision 
that comes out with some of those graduates at the end where, you know, I, I, you'll sit and talk to them and talk about an RAF and say, why are you talking about a retirement annuity as it's a sort of a, a appendage, it's a separate thing? Have you never invested your own money? Have you never, no, we haven't. We haven't been out there. So is that maybe a skill that's needed is to allow graduates when they come out to have a broader perspective of what's going on? Okay, so we are certainly adapting all our qualifications to incorporate what we're calling workplace integrated learning. And uh, it's actually a model, funny enough, if you look at the Technion in Israel. You cannot graduate from the Technion in Israel if you don't have some kind of workplace integrated learning. So, for example, in engineering and the Technion, you will have to produce a project that is capable of being marketed and, and you know, out there in the real world. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to emulate that to some extent, not exactly the same, but to some extent where we're incorporating workplace integrated learning, where we're exposing the learner to the real world of work relative to his or her um, fields of, of study. And the, 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 we've recurriculated our degrees such that you won't be able to graduate if you haven't completed the workplace integrated learning. And that also talks to the ability of the student to get a job after he graduates, because that's another problem in South Africa, that we have lots of graduates, but we also have a massive unemployment rate in the country. So we're trying to solve both those problems. One is to improve throughput rates. In other words, the number of students who start and who finish. And we're using a lot of technology to assist us in that uh, journey and ensure that we're in touch with students and students who start to actually finish. And I'll come back to that point shortly. But then the second part of it is to say, okay, what happens to the student after he graduates? Right. How does he go out there and find, ensure that he finds the job? And so in, at the beginning of this year, we introduced a program called uh, Graduate Plus, where we've said to our students that upon graduation, if you don't find your own job, we will put you through an incubation program. We'll put you through a program where we assist you in finding jobs. We teach you how to find a job. And if at the end of that you don't find the job, then we will put you on a post-grad qualification, post-grad diploma in, in management. And if you st- and Or alternatively, uh, we will pay you out 50,000 rand. That's how confident we are that our workplace integrated learning is going to actually result in students actually finding jobs. How long has this program been running? So we've just introduced it this year where we've recurriculated our qualifications and we've created this Graduate Plus program, which is an extensive program. To be honest, it's modeled on a number of American universities who are doing a very similar thing. So it's not, so although it sounds revolutionary and it is in the South African context, um, we have researched and uh, modeled it to a large extent on other programs that are running overseas. Why I'm sitting uh, so surprised is one of the biggest crises we have in the country is graduates that aren't able to be employed. You're saying to me before that someone with an honors degree, it's only six percent of people who yeah. who don't. But yet you constantly hear of people with phenomenal qualifications that are just unable to find work. Okay, so I think you've got to differentiate between qualifications that are relev- relevant to the workplace and those that aren't. So if you talk about qualifications that are relevant to the workplace, and you talk about graduates from, uh, and you exclude what we call the historically. Uh, disadvantaged universities, then the Bureau for Economic Research in Stellenbosch has recently published a report showing that only 6% of those with at least four years of post-school study, in other words, three years plus a post-grad diploma or an honors degree, only 6% of those are actually unemployed, which is quite interesting. And I think it also talks to the fact that what an ed- 
an education actually gives you or a tertiary education is actually thinking skills, not necessarily going to uh, give you the skills directly related to what you're going to work in. And we find that many often students study X and work in Y. And in the new world, the predictions are that people will change jobs as many as three to five times and might have as many as three to five careers, completely different careers in their life. And so the question is, how do you equip them for that? Now, just to share with you a story, just on that note, briefly, somebody that I know quite well um, finished school, and his father's a, a financial director at a large listed company, and he said to him, well, what do you want to do? He says, I don't know. He says, well, what are you passionate about? He says, I'm passionate about history. So he said, great. I did a three-year history degree. And he said, and now? He says, I'd like to do honors. He says, cool, you can do honors. He says, and now when you finish honors, he says, I'd like to work with people. And they live in Canada, and he say he ended up working for AT&T selling contracts and phones and all that. Today is the marketing director of Google Canada. Oh, and wow. when he went for the interview, he said to them, why me? Yeah. He says, because you think differently. You think broadly. You're not trained to think in a particular way. And that's mm. what we're looking for. And to me, that was quite a life lesson. Craig, sorry about being late. I really just take a quick break. We need to get some money for the show. So let's go to the ads. We'll be back in a minute. Avi on money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. It's 22 minutes past 12, and in studio with me is Ari Katz, no stranger to the community. Ari Katz, famous for Boston City Campus, founder and CEO of, of Boston. Ari, you recently spoke at the World Bank, where, if I can read the stat that you gave me, of the 338,000 students in 2015 in UNISA, the dropout range, um, dropout rates range from 84% for four-year degrees to a staggering 95% for three-year diplomas. And what I find heartbreaking about that, besides the fact that only 5% are graduating, people used food money to go to and no, get no, educated, absolutely. and they, they just can't see it through. So I think what, to me, there are a number of issues around that. The first one is if we just talk about on the sociological and the human level, um, if you think about it, that between, as you're saying, between 5 and 16% of the students are actually graduating. That means, as you said, 84% are dropping off the system, and those guys come in with high expectations on day one, extremely motivated with opportunity to change their lives, and they drop off the system. And when they drop off, they're halfway through or whatever else it is, and they're hugely frustrated individuals. And as you say, they've spent a lot of money to actually get there and time. Um, and of course, that increases the unemployment rate and the frustration level. So to me, that is a massive issue. And what was interesting about that symposium with the World Bank, where the minister also spoke, was that she was very focused on access. And I actually don't believe it's about access to the universities. I actually believe it's about throughput. So... Um, I think they should rather be focusing on how you get those 300 students from start to end rather than trying to just get them into the system. We should be focusing on how we get them out the other end um, with relevant qualifications and employment. So I think the opportunity really is about using technology to improve throughput. What is the reason that 80% of students are not finishing? So I think a lot of it is, uh, number one, uh, grounding at school. That Remember that they've dropped the standards of uh, what is required to actually get a bachelor's pass. 
So in the old days where um, a much lower percentage of students actually got a, a bachelor's pass, today almost everybody gets a bachelor's pass. Well, not everybody, but a much higher percentage. So um, in order to get a bachelor's pass, historically, you had to pass uh, certain subjects on a designated list. You have to get more than 50% in, I think it was four of those subjects. Today, they've dropped the designated list. So, so long as you get more than 50% in any four subjects, excluding life orientation. So it could be in dance and it could be in music and it could be any four subjects, you're going to get a bachelor's pass. And so the question is whether that grounding from school level has actually equipped you to actually enter university. So I think that's one issue. Then the next issue is students choosing appropriate qualifications, doing the research on what is this qualification that I'm going to study so that when I enter the qualification, this is actually what I want to do, that I don't start studying it and then find, well, this is not what I want to do and drop out. So that's the second reason. And then the third one, which is is probably one of the biggest one, is the lack of support by the institution from the time I enter till the time I graduate. And that is a function of because we're providing access to so many students I don't think we have the capacity, when I say we as a country I'm talking about, to provide that. And we haven't kept up to speed with the use of technology. So we at Boston, for example, have changed that whole methodology. And our whole system today is run on a a very proactive artificial intelligence tools that we use to, number one, profile the students. And number two, to proactively monitor and mentor them throughout their journey. Because I think that's one of the biggest issues that a student has. They come in, they go to lectures, they sit, they they listen. It all makes sense. And then they sit down to do the assignment and also they hit a brick wall. By the time they go out to lecture tomorrow or two days' time, the lecture is on to the next subject already. And they've got this gaping hole with no way of filling it. Is artificial intelligence, is IT coming to help to their aid? Okay, so what we've done to, to solve that is... Because also remember you get into, especially in the South African context, we have a diverse range of students. So in the Boston City campus side, and I'm not talking about Boston Media House now, which is a lecture-based environment, but in the Boston City campus side, all our lectures are pre-recorded. So when you spoke about a lecture and then coming in tomorrow and I've been left behind, there's no such thing as that. You can go back and you can watch the same lecture ten times, as many times as you want. It's online and every single lecture in every single subject irrespective of whether you're doing a, a BCom or a BAC or uh, whatever degree it is or whatever diploma it is, the lectures are fully recorded. Wow, okay. Then at the end, during and at the end of every lecture, we also have uh, interactive exercises to test comprehension. And depending on how you perform on those, you can either communicate with an educator in Stellenbosch or the educator will proactively communicate with you. In addition to that, what we do is we provide the the student on day one with all his academic material. So he gets his books on day one together with his pack, and we give him also what we call an e-bury, which is an e-library. So you don't have to go to a library. You don't have to look up. You don't have to buy any other books. All the textbooks that you're going to need, we've done a deal with Jutas and with Butterworths and all the different companies, and we've downloaded all the relevant textbooks onto uh, an e-platform, and the student can actually go on that, and all the books that he needs is in uh, is in an e-library. So now, so let's start this. So number one, you've got all the resources you need. You've got your textbook, you've got your e-library, you've got all your lectures uh, pre-recorded. Then you start your journey. And in starting that journey, what the system will do for you, it will map out for you your weekly progress. 
So this is what I have to cover every week between now and the exam. And uh, so you can checkpoint yourself. And in addition to that, we uh, it indicates when your assignments are due, etc. As you progress closer to assignment dates, you will start getting notifications from us, either in the form of an SMS or an email or whatever it may be. You'll get a message to tell you, uh, Avi, there's an assignment due in three days' time. Avi, you missed your assignment. Avi, uh, you've only got one more, otherwise you're going to be excluded from the exam, what's going on. So where we've changed the focus from the historical models, which were really about uh, reactive models, where you had to get hold of the lecturer or where you were studying and where you got excluded, we've worked it the other way. Where we've said, here's everything and we will push you from our side. So we're having Stellenbosch an academic hub um, and a whole back office infrastructure over there. And those guys drive our 46 colleges right around the country. Whether you're studying in the college or whether you're studying at home or at work or whatever it may be, you're going to be channeled through the Stellenbosch back office. Just out of interest, why Stellenbosch? You, you all, I mean, you here yeah. in Joburg. So it, there's a, there are a number of reasons for that. Besides uh, it being prettier. <laughs> yeah. So uh, remember that uh, it's only our academic back office that's uh, – um, Situated in Stellenbosch Our admin and other officers Are sitting in Johannesburg um, Primarily because that's where we set up The academic hub and all the academics were You know, and we just grew from there So it's interesting It was almost like that's where the need that, That's where the solution to the need was And it Correct. grew from there Yeah. Now that you've got all that Let's let's get sort of back on topic We, we now, the whole learning process Is totally different to what it was Ten years ago How's that skilling a current student for future employment? Okay, so I think what's different is whereas 10 years ago, uh, learning was about regurgitation. Yes. That's really what it was. Certainly when I went to school and when I went to university, if you had a great memory and you could regurgitate, you didn't have to understand anything, uh, you would you'd be a first student. And I use myself as an example. I hope it wasn't like at a medical school. Uh, let me tell you, <laughs> I'm not sure that it was that different. I mean, I studied accounting. And um, I was a reasonably good student, and I remember arriving at work on day one. Uh, I'll never forget this experience. And I had completed my degree. In fact, I had a first for auditing uh, as a major. And on day one, I remember saying to one of the clerks, he said, tell me, what is the difference between an invoice and a statement? <laughs> now, this is the guy who had finished his degree and a first for auditing and didn't know the difference between invoice and a statement because, quite frankly, I'd never seen it. And so... And I didn't understand what it really meant. So I knew how to regurgitate the 10 points, you know, that were necessary to, to get 10 out of 10 for the question. But I didn't actually understand what I was, what I was reading or learning. So what's changed today is that the methodology of learning and the methodology of questioning and assessment has changed significantly. So we're no more focused on regurgitation. We're happy for you to have access to your textbooks if you need it. Because the kind of questions we're going to ask you are going to be questions where you're going to have to interpret the results as opposed to regurgitate it. So we don't care whether you can find it in the textbook. Go look up the section in the the tax act in the textbook. I don't really care. What I want to know from you is are you able to interpret it? Are you able to put a scheme together? Are you able to um, interrogate it? And those are the skills that are going to equip you for what you're calling the fourth industrial revolution. So where we spoke earlier about somebody having uh, three or five different careers, they're not going to get the skills today for any of those three or five careers. What we're hopefully going to give them are the critical thinking skills 
so that we develop their ability to question, to interrogate, to interpret. As I said to you, the, the, the skills that you learn from learning Mara, those skills, if they're going to have that, then they're going to be able to adapt. And adaptability is a big part of it, adaptability and flexibility. Then they're going to be ad- able to adapt from uh, whatever they study. You, you, know, you spoke earlier of history of your history graduate who's now the marketing director of Google. Correct. And so it's about adaptability. It's about um, innovative thinking, collaborative thinking, uh, problem solving, etc. That's really the skills that we're trying to give uh, the learner today. But ultimately, somebody coming out of a, an accounting degree needs to know the difference between a balance sheet and income statement and no, a cash obviously flow. Obviously, that's a given that you've got the technical skills. Right. And so, obviously, I mean, it's a given that you have that. But what, what's interesting, and I think what's also relevant for, for us just talking about it here for our kids at school, that we also have a look. You know, we, we're talking now about the tertiary environment, but actually we should be thinking more, uh, even though, uh, you know, Boston's not in the tertiary environment, although we do have a school in the secondary environment. But what we should be uh, thinking about is how do we migrate that kind of thinking all the way down to literally grade one, where obviously you've got to get the basic skills, as you spoke about the difference, knowing what an income statement and balance sheet and debits and credits and all that kind of stuff. You obviously have to have the basic skills, but over and above that, we should be t- teaching kids from a very early age how to uh, work together, collaborative learning, how to think critically, innovation, those kind of skills that were never taught when I was at school. Isn't there also a push function that's coming into it? You're now getting students coming into university. Uh, uh, just a practical example. Um, I fetched my daughter last night. She's in grade 11. said to the music app you downloaded on my phone, I don't really like it. Please can we go back to the old one? And within one second, she communicated with her brother overseas. What password did you use? Da 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 da. She reloaded it. Yeah. But 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 with a sense of confidence and ease, and that's the person who's going to take that skill into varsity and then into the workplace. So there's no retraining. It's just a progression. Correct. Uh, uh, you know what the the youngsters of today are digital savvy, uh, and they're tech savvy, and so for them it's quite easy. And that's why our environment works well for them. Because they've, they've got that. So interestingly enough, in terms that I was showing you a little bit earlier about an app that, so my son who works for, uh, at Boston as well, uh, through another entity called Boston Connect, has developed uh, this learning on the go um, app where you literally go in there and you can gain skills in multiple different areas. Um, and it's almost the Netflix of learning, so to speak. So I can go on there and I can say, well, I need skills in blogging. So quickly look at, you can log onto this little app and boom, you'll pick up a little course in blogging. It'll ask you some questions. You'll upload them and here we go. What happens if I need that particular skill on my CV for a job that I'm looking for? Could I say I've done this course? Okay. So what, what he's busy, uh, doing, what they're busy doing at the moment is, is that you'll be able to watch that little course in blogging as we spoke about. You'll do an assessment and you'll get a badge. Right. And you can put that badge. And if you go onto LinkedIn, you'll see how many people right around the world today are displaying their badges in specific skills, uh, on a very granular level. I'm a little bit out of the academic world. What is a badge? Okay. So it would really be just a, uh, a, a measure of recognition. Um, and different institutions offer different badges and they offer them at a micro level or a nano level or a master's level, etc. And it's really a degree, it's, it's really t- a testing to the 
um, competency um, of the person within that micro skill that you've acquired. Okay, so it's, so yeah, so it's almost like a a drill down into specific. Ex- what we were discussing before the show, and I see it's coming up quite a lot, is there's not going to be a lot of redundancy going forward. We've got all these kids, all these people coming out of us who can think on all these different levels and can handle anything. But as technology comes in, is that not going to replace people? Okay, so that's very, very interesting. You know, that um, whenever I get asked that question, I like to think of there was a theory that was developed in the 1800s called, I think it was called the lump of labor theory, if I remember correctly. And I'll just tell you quickly what went as follows. It was developed by, I've forgotten the name of the professor, where he said that, um, you know, we shouldn't automate the development of washers. Because if we do, they're only a lump of washers that are going to be needed in the world. So if we automate those, we'll put people out of jobs. But what he failed to understand was that if we automate the development of washers, they'll be much cheaper. And therefore, there'll be many more applications for those washers and etc. and will lead to the age of mechanization, etc. And so I like to think of the, the future world as in that context. And that is that I don't believe that the robots are coming for our jobs so to speak. I actually believe that we're going to create more jobs. They're just going to be different kinds of jobs. And the research shows that in the uh, in the ASEAN countries, in the Singapore, Indonesia, etc., and funnily enough, Israel also fits into that mold, even though it's not one of the ASEAN countries. What they've shown is that for every hundred jobs that are disrupted outside of those countries, they are able to create 150 new jobs. So think about it, that whilst the old jobs might disappear out the window, the new jobs in terms of programming, robots, um, big data, data science, etc., AR, artificial intelligence, uh, virtual reality, etc., etc., none of those skills really exist on a mass scale yet. So they're going to have to be created, in inverted commas, those skills. So the jobs, I don't believe that the jobs are going to disappear In fact, in the last 30 years, the world, outside of South Africa and a few other countries, the world as a whole has got the lowest unemployment rate that it's had in the last 30 years. That's all good and well, and and, and it's wonderful. But the quality of work, in other words, the workplace environment, the safety, the ability to progress, and the the salaries that are being paid – for example, in those Asiatic countries, as you're saying, there's 1.5 to 1 replacement ratio – is it a better job? Are people saying, no, okay. well, so before I was in a field earning nothing, now I'm, uh, you know, uh, are my children going to be better off than I am? Well, I, th- I think generally the world is a more economically prosperous place than it was, you know, 30 years ago. But what has also happened is that the, the divide, because of the digital economy, the divide between the haves and the haves nots has become much bigger. And in fact, they say that um, the, the, the top 10 wealthiest people in the world are as wealthy as the 50% of the poorest um, part of the world. So that's, that's staggering if you think about it. And a lot of that is through digitization. So, yes, the, the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots is going to get much bigger. All right, we need to run to the uh, shops again. But when we come back, let's maybe talk a little bit about banking. And then what I'd like to do in the last part of the show is talk more specific about South Africa, 
what jobs are available, what skills are needed. Maybe let's talk to people who are thinking of or finishing school or in school, thinking about a career, and maybe how things have changed. You know, one time everybody wanted to be accountant. Then actuarial science became the flavor of the month, and not everybody can do that. And let's just have a chat around that. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Avi on money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9. I Ari, in the car now, in the offices now, everybody's either knows a student's got a, a student or a child that's in school, and everybody's grappling with subjects they should take, what they should learn. What would your general advice be about prepping yourself in high school, doing subjects that you enjoy, that you're good at, in order to help you later on? Okay, so just before we talk about subjects, maybe I should just mention one other thing that's relevant to it. We spoke about the, you know, the digital age, the fourth industrial revolution, etc. And I think one of the key aspects is a focus on learning how to learn. So that's a big focus. And I think that our school system should take cognizance of the learning how to learn so that our, our students have obviously the foundation skills, you know, math, science, etc. Uh, and of course, the, the, the learning how to learn includes their ability to, um, to, to learn between disciplines, cross disciplines. Um, so I think those are very, very important skills, number one. Irrespective of what you, uh, what you ultimately want to study, you're going to be learn, entering an environment or a world where you're going to have to be continuously learning. And as we said, not regurgitative learning, but interpretive questioning, uh, cross, uh, fertilization, cross disciplines, etc. So that's number one. Then number two, I think it's critical for our kids at school today to have all the fundamentals. So of course, English skills, uh, communication and English, critical, together with maths, science, those kind of skills, irrespective of what you're ultimately going to study. Uh, those are the skills that are going to set you up for the future, whether you decide after to study accounting or science or medicine or actually be a historian. It's important that you're able to communicate, you're able to um, be um, literate both in, in, in English as well as in the numerates. Can I ask you, why is science such a feature? If a student says to you, I want to become a historian or I want to do actuarial science, you know, maybe that's, that's more later, but uh, I want to, I want to be, I want to do, I want to become an English teacher. Why is this, there, this constant focus on the sciences? Well, because the future world is a world of physics, chemistry, etc. you know, so I think it's very important. Although having said that, having said that, if the kids can't do science, then rather than, you know, and often have that, they say, listen, I just can't do it. Okay. So at least then focus on maths. You know, I think as essentials, before we go any further, English and maths are the two most critical, in my opinion, probably the two most critically important subjects you have to uh, put energy in, you have to be, you have to be good at. You know, you have to excel at those. Because that's really going to give you the foundation absolutely. to build on. Absolutely. And it's also going to, I suppose, give you the ability to communicate on the one hand and the ability to think on the other hand. Absolutely. And the two together are going to come, yep. you know, so to give you the platform to launch from there. Exactly. And generally, there's, interestingly enough, there's a study that was done that showed that there's actually a correlation between your uh, English uh, comprehension type skills and your ability to perform um, at university. Obviously, because you, you're able to read, you're able to comprehend, you're able to interpret, etc. So, you know. 
Okay, so now we've got that um, on, on off pad. So those are the basic subjects someone should take and, and excel in them in order to get into university. The degrees that were traditionally accepted before as the the doyens of postgraduate education, your chartered yeah. accountants, actuarial science, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, are those degrees going to be relevant going forward? No, I think they still will be, and they certainly still are. Um, I think one also needs to understand whether one's to be in the profession. In other words, do you want to actually work as a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor? Um, or do you just want to create, get entrepreneurial and thinking skills? So that's one aspect to think about. But the other interesting thing when you ask about are those careers still going to be relevant? I think what's different today is that you can study whatever it is. Let's just take medicine as an example, but you don't necessarily have to work as a doctor. You can go into AI. You can go into technology of medicine. Correct. So there are many, uh, you, you might study a particular discipline, but it doesn't mean that you're going to land up working in that narrow discipline because each of the disciplines today have become super specialized. Ari, we're running out of time. Let's talk specifically about South Africa. We've been through a tumultuous time. It's, it's quite incredible if you think back at, we were so in the thick of it. We're walking around knee-deep in mud, and we didn't even realize it, so to speak, and it's not coming out. Yet many, many companies just kept focus. They were criticized because they kept big cash balances on their balance sheet, and they said, we're not investing until the the milieu is correct for that. You were in education. You had to keep going forward. You had to keep looking forward as to what the country needs. But now that hopefully that's behind us, and what is your thoughts, your feeling, your excitement about the future. So I th- I'm not convinced, by the way, that that's really behind us. And, or, you know, I think it'll be a long way away from okay. being behind us. Although I think that we do have an exciting future. I think there's a lot of opportunity in the country. As you said, there's mass unemployment. However, within, you know, there's a famous uh, saying that amongst the disruption, there's always huge amount of opportunity. Correct. And, uh, so I think there's a lot of opportunity in the country, particularly for entrepreneurship, um, provided you have the skills and whatever else needs, you know, you need to be able to be successful in that. Um, but I think there's a lot of opportunity going forward. However, um, I would also say that it's critical that you get an education behind you in whatever you're going to be doing. And even if you want to be an entrepreneur, um, and I hear a lot of kids coming out of school and saying, well, I don't need to study. I'm just going to open up a business and by tomorrow I'll be a millionaire. Um, so it doesn't actually work like that. As we know that over 90% of businesses that start actually fail. Um, and so it's important, number one, to get the, an education up front and to, even if you're going to be an entrepreneur, to learn what is a balance sheet, what is an income statement you were talking about earlier, and what are all the fundamentals around all the critical success factors of a successful business. I'm sitting here smiling simply because a very good friend of mine who actually dropped out of school is the um, CFO of a very large property developing company um, in Manhattan. And uh, he had to upskill himself and he had to go just, you know, get all the qualifications. But one thing the CEO told him, who's an Israeli chap who never finished high school, he said the amount of times that he has been lied to in financial statements, if he had one penny for every lie, he would be a comfortable guy. And it's simply because he didn't have the deep understanding of what he was actually looking at. And that's exactly what you're saying to. Mm-hmm. If you can sit down with a set of financials quietly and go through them yourself and understand what they're really saying, then no one can pull the wool over your ass or it will be more difficult to. 
Correct, and I think also to continuously be in the learning phase. You know, I think if you if you're not in continuous learning in the new world, you're going to be obsolete. And you know, you spoke before about your friend who's a historian who's now the marketing director of Google. So just think about it: if you were the marketing director of any major public corporation ten years ago, in the last ten years, if you haven't learnt about Google and Facebook and Twitter, etc., and analytics and marketing and all of that kind of stuff. Your history, even if you were the marketing director of the major corporate 10 years ago. So irrespective of whether you're uh, a millennial or whether you're in your 40s or your 50s or even your 60s, there's this massive move back towards education. And what's interesting in America, by the way, more than 50% of people who are in learning are actually people who are actually in the workforce and over 40 years old. That's quite incredible because we interviewed a company here two, three weeks ago that was started by academics at WITS oh. where they were, they created a hub for students and all of a sudden it became a business. Um, and, and from there it developed, it was a group of seven post-grade students. So that's a company with 550 employees simply because they needed the skills of yeah. the academia together with those out in the business place and they put them together. And they grew from there. Well, think about it. Facebook started by Zuckerberg when he was a student at Harvard as a means of communication. That's all about that. uh, Ari, as I said, we're going to run out of time, which you basically have. How do people get hold of you? How do they get hold of Boston? And very briefly, what does Boston offer at the moment? Boston's a household name today. But what courses are available? What, what, What does it offer the public? Okay, so today we're a tertiary, uh, a private higher education institution. We are accredited by the Council of Higher Education, obviously registered with the Department of Education. We offer higher certificates, diplomas, and degrees in multiple disciplines. Um, you can either study at home or at work, or you can come into any one of our 46 Boston City campuses around the country. As I said to you before, it's, most of it's technology-driven. Um, we do BCOMs, BAC, uh, BCOM Law, postgrads, etc. And in our media school, we have a three-year diploma and a four-year degree in media studies. Uh, That's a lecture-based environment in Santon, Pretoria, and Durban. And how do people get hold of you? Boston.co.za? www.boston.co.za or they're welcome to email me, ari at boston.co.za. Well, there you go, straight from the man himself. Ari, thank you so much for coming in. I think it's a subject that we can go on and on. We've really tried, I think, to stuff a lot into a very short time. But the bottom line is that things are changing. Things There's a constant metamorphosis that's happening. And if you're not going to keep up with it, then you're just going to simply get left behind. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great. Pleasure. Guys, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Thanks, thanks for being with us. Next week, what we're going to do is something that we really haven't done for uh, for a couple of months is that we're really just going to go look at macroeconomic issues around um, around the world. We've got one of the uh, economists from the banks coming in. We just want to look what's happening, what's happening in America with Trump, what's happening with Brexit, how that impacts on us. And also what we want to try to do is just have a little bit of a crystal ball, if possible, as to what's going to happen with equities on the South African market going forward, because that's quite important. It's been incredibly tumultuous the last couple of years. Let's say the last three years, you've basically gone nowhere. We've seen a bit of respite come through the last 10 days, two weeks backed up by a nice movement overseas. But is it sustainable? Is it a dead cat bounce? Well, let's unpack that next week. Look forward to spending the time with you. Ari, thanks so much once again. Bye-bye. We'll see you next week.